Hey, Proof listeners. Plugra's premium European-style butter is a favorite of bakers. Why? Cook's Illustrated Recipe developer Erica Turner sums it up. Hey, Kevin. Did you know that the kind of butter you use when you're baking can actually make a difference in how your dish turns out? I did not. Butters that are slow-churned, like Plugra, are easier to work with because they make doughs more pliable. The amount of fat in the butter also makes a difference. Tell me more. Okay, so most American butters contain around 80% butter fat, but European-style butters, like Plugra, have a higher fat content. In fact, Plugra Premium European-style butter always contains 82% butter fat. And you're saying 2% is enough to make a noticeable difference? Oh, yeah, definitely. With Plugra Slow Turn Butter and its 82% butter fat content, you'll notice richer, flakier pastries, cakes that rise higher, and cookies that crisp more easily. Embrace your inner butter lover. From professional kitchens to your home. Visit Plugra.com for more information. Hey friends, it's Kevin Pang. This week is the fourth installment of Best of Proof Award Season. If you're new here, hello, howdy, glad you're getting a feel of our podcast. And if you're a longtime listener, thanks for reacquainting yourself with our feed as we bring you some of our all-time award-winning episodes. New episodes, by the way, are coming in March. That's just in a few weeks. In the meantime, I wanted to share this exciting episode, which won us a Webby Award in 2020. Former managing producer Sarah Joyner leads us on this stranger-than-fiction science adventure story. Get this. Seamus Blackley is the creator of the Xbox. He's also an ancient Egypt enthusiast. So he assembles this elite team of scientists and archaeologists, all with one grand scheme in mind, to extract dormant yeast from the nooks and crannies of ancient Egyptian pots stored in the vaults of the world's most prestigious museums and bake bread with it. Yes, it's crazy. Anyway, enjoy this greatest baking heist we've ever reported on this show. So this week on Proof, it's Raiders of the Lost Yeast. And here's our founding host, Bridget Lancaster. The Museum of Fine Arts in Boston is an imposing structure. It was built in 1909, a neoclassical beauty. Full granite facade, towering pillars, a grand rotunda appropriate given the importance of the precious artworks that it houses. Monet's, Van Gogh's, Rembrandt's, Greek and Roman antiquities. But Seamus Blackley is not there for those. It's July 2019, so it's hot out when Seamus arrives at the museum. He's nervous, but pretending not to be. Months of planning has led him to this very moment. He's carrying his kit, Inside, all the tools he'll need to complete the job, the ultimate score. He enters the MFA through the employee entrance and proceeds into the museum's subterranean vault. There he meets with Egyptologists that he had somehow convinced to let him down into this room. It was insane. You know, (laughs) the, the number of objects down there was incredible. The objects that his colleague, Dr. Love, had selected for him to test were pulled aside on a cart waiting for him. Precious Egyptian antiquities. And the Egyptologist hands me this beer vessel. And just nonchalantly, 
and for the first time in my life, I'm, I'm touching this thing. And it's not like I'm touching some piece of tomb jewelry or something, you know, that you'd usually see out on display in a museum. I'm getting handed something held by regular people. And it was, it was emotional for me. The time has come. He puts on sterilized garments, a gown, a mask, hairnet, and gloves. If everything goes just so, exactly according to plan, then maybe he could pull it off. He and his team, they'd trained for this, planned, practiced, and practiced again. Everything hinges on this moment. You might wonder, what exactly is this big score? It's 4,500-year-old ancient Egyptian live yeast, and Seamus wanted to bake bread with it. He'd later become the subject of headlines that sound muddled and, to be honest, pretty fake. Father of the Xbox and amateur gastro-Egyptologist bakes bread with 4,500-year-old yeast. And in a way, those headlines do very little justice to the full extent of this story. Sure, they capture what happened in a basic sense. One of the guys who invented the Xbox baked bread with very, very, very old yeast. But what the headlines don't tell you is that this is actually a heist. Because what really happened is this. Three people with different highly specialized skill sets, we'll call them our unlikely crew of renegades, they met on Twitter, and together they devised a plan— a plan to gain access to ancient Egyptian artifacts stored in the vaults of some of the world's most prestigious museums. To extract 4,500-year-old yeast from those artifacts to bring them back to life. To bake bread with yeast that hasn't been baked with since the ancient Egyptian empire. All with an audience of hundreds of thousands of supporters on one of the most vitriolic social media platforms that there is. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Bridget Lancaster, and this is Proof. Hi there. I'm Deb Perlman, creator and mastermind behind Smitten Kitchen and the author of three cookbooks. And I'm Kenji Lopez-Alt. You might know me from Serious Eats, The Food Lab, and The Walk. We're both professional home cooks, which means that we create and test recipes, obsessing over them until they're just right. And on our new podcast, The Recipe with Kenji and Deb, we'll share our techniques and ingredients so that you can learn everything you need to create your own perfect recipes. From Radiotopia, from PRX, it's The Recipe with Kenji and Deb. Out now on your favorite podcast platform. Our managing producer, Sarah Joyner, brings us this story. This is Seamus talking, as he often does, about ancient Egypt. It's like it's the ultimate age discrimination, right? Oh, they didn't have 747s and iPhones, so they were morons. And they. He's talking about the bias we modern people have against ancient people. This is the kind of harmless rant I came to expect from him, because Seamus isn't the kind of person to care about something just a little bit. Everyone knows it, and I demand to be compensated or shown proof that he is not paid as much anymore. You re- so you read that, that person isn't going to eat a crappy, flat loaf of bread. Seamus has big feelings about Egypt. He's in awe of the ancient Egyptians. He talks about them with a certain romance. 
And even after the dozens of times he's spoken to press about this story, when he talked to me, he was still able to muster that same enthusiasm that landed him here in the first place. I guess I'm sort of an Egyptology creep. Seamus's enthusiasm isn't reserved just for Egypt. He's got it for almost everything that he does. And he's had it for a long time, which is how he ended up with one extraordinary story. He's the kind of person who, if you sat next to him on an airplane and he got to talking about his past, you'd think he was lying. Because all of that can't be true. Seamus lived a million lives before I knew who he was. Formerly a musician, jazz piano, rock, even steel drums at one point. Then a physicist, a high-energy particle physicist at the Fermilab, to be specific. He was forced into a career change in 93 when Congress canceled plans to build a superconducting supercollider in Waxahachie, Texas. He found out on CNN. Then he became a big video game designer. Apparently, complex physics are involved. When he was young, he produced a Jurassic Park game for DreamWorks. Unfortunately, it turned out to be a public failure, but he learned from it. And as he'd always done, he moved on. He went to work for Bill Gates at Microsoft and eventually developed the Xbox in 2001. Yes, that Xbox. And yes, all of this is true. For the sake of time, I'll fast forward a little bit. After the Xbox, he worked as an agent for over a decade. He's also a husband and father of two boys. And now he's the CEO of a company, something in the tech field that does something mysterious that nobody knows about yet. Uh, we have a, a sound. Oh, hold on a second. That's the lunch gong. Yeah, when lunch shows up, we have a gong. And that's where I find him now. This is what I mean when I say it's difficult to believe his life story. But the more I got to know him, the more it made sense. It was even logical. Because, as I would find out, Seamus doesn't do things halfway. It's this trait that makes him the perfect, shall we say, mastermind of an Egyptian bread-baking scheme. Somewhere along the way, on top of everything else that he was doing, Seamus found time for a hobby. I think, okay, uh, you know, full disclosure, I think I was trying to impress a girl, and so I said I knew how to bake bread, which I maybe had seen my mother do. And so I started baking, and I realized that I really liked it. It connected with something in me. And so on and off, for many decades, I'd been baking. What started as amateur baking quickly developed into something else. Seamus moved from baking basic sandwich bread to the more technical sourdough. A loaf of sourdough, it begins with a starter that's made from something called a pre-ferment. That's just a mixture of flour and water. As the mixture sits, the microscopic natural bacteria in yeast brings about fermentation. It starts to bubble, and eventually, it'll create that signature sour tang and smell. But starter needs to be fed to stay alive. So at regular intervals, some of that starter is removed. And then the remaining starter will get fed with more flour and water. It's a project. So like anything Seamus does, he decided to do bread bigger. And how do you go nerdier than homemade sourdough bread? Well, you mill the grain yourself, and you harvest your own wild yeast. 
And so I started trying to collect yeast on hikes and from different places and see if the flavor of the bread was different. He'd capture microscopic wild yeasts. He set out containers of flour and water mixtures, left in various, quote, biologically interesting places, places that were rich in plant or animal wildlife. And then he'd retrieve them, take them home, methodically feed them more flour and ferment them into sourdough starters until they're ready for baking. And through many years of trial and error, he got pretty good at it. He posted pictures of his beautiful wild yeast sourdough loaves on Twitter. And it was right about that time that my friend, the brewer, mailed me a Ziploc bag with this supposedly ancient Egyptian yeast. So, after already living a life full of stories worth telling, this is where this story begins. On Sunday morning, April 14th, as he's getting ready for his Sunday baking, Seamus wrote a Twitter post. He said, I've been working on a yeast sample that I got from, and then in parentheses, redacted source. He said, it's from scrapings of ancient Egyptian bread pots. And then he hits tweet. This April day in particular, Seamus was baking with the yeast culture that was given to him by someone he wouldn't name. And to this day, he still hasn't. And this mysterious source claimed that that yeast culture was 5,000 years old. So he milled his own flour from ancient grains that were appropriate for the Egyptian area, barley and emmer. Then he mixes in the purported ancient Egyptian starter. And just as he gets to baking, the notifications come flooding in. Twitter comes up and says, you seem to be getting a lot of responses. Would you like us to filter the responses? I'm thinking, what the What the, I didn't, you know, it's not some Xbox anniversary or something. What's going on? Turns out a lot of people find ancient Egyptian baking really interesting. And so I knew that there were something like hundreds of thousands or a million people who were going to be looking to see if I successfully got a decent looking loaf of bread. And, you know, and that's pressure <laughs> when you're in your kitchen on a Sunday in your boxer shorts and an old T-shirt puttering around, discovering that you've mistakenly attracted the attention of like, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. He did bake a decent looking loaf of bread that day, by the way. But what's interesting is what happens next. So I sent him a direct message on Twitter explaining who I was. I did science and stuff like that. And I was interested in, in a culture of the yeast, if possible. This is Rich Bowman. Rich is a grad student in microbiology at the University of Iowa. Rich is earnest and kind, really likes science, and they're a Navy veteran, so they say things like, yes, ma'am, almost as a reflex. Yes, ma'am. Seamus created a group for baking and brewing enthusiasts called Club Yeast, and he mailed a portion of the supposed ancient Egyptian yeast out to anyone who wanted it for free. Most of the feedback I got from that initial ancient Egyptian baking post was really positive, but some of it was not. And, and I can't remember the specific message, but there was one from Rich where they said, hey, uh, <laughs> so what's the, you know, what's the history of this microbe and how do we know it's from ancient Egypt? Rich wasn't the only one who was critical. The way it was coming across on Twitter was, I have ancient yeast, and I thought, yeah, right. What you've got is museum dust. This is Dr. Serena Love. She's an archaeologist and Egyptologist. 
She's from California, but she lives and works in Australia. I just started asking him questions about where it came from, what time period it was, what kind of pot that he got it from. You know, was it a bread mold? Was it a beer jug? What kind of context was it found? Was it a funerary context? Was it from a settlement? All of the questions. And he couldn't answer any of my questions. People rightly asked me, you know, how the hell I knew that it was ancient and how I knew it wasn't contaminated and where did it come from and how did I know anything about anything? And they were right. Seamus agreed. He didn't know what he had, not really. He only knew what his source had told him, so he decided to do something about it. What Seamus wanted to do was eliminate doubt by eliminating the chain of custody. He wanted to secure the ancient yeast himself and bake with it. But this is a heist, after all. And if you've ever seen a good heist movie, you know the mastermind can't operate alone. Lucky for Seamus, he had inadvertently found the perfect team of strangers from the internet to help him do it. I directly, you know, reached out to Rich and to Dr. Love, and I said, all right, well, you know, help me do it right then. Seamus Blackley, the mastermind, dreamer, visionary, unburdened by the fear of failure. Crazy enough to try big things. Oh, but see, I've been publicly humiliated before, so it it ain't no thing. Dr. Love, the insider. She knows the ins and outs of the targets. She's soft-spoken but confident, and she speaks with a methodical precision. She collects degrees like some collect coins. She says things like this. I'm an old kingdom girl at heart. Rich Bowman, the biologist. Rich is reserved and yet somehow also open to adventure, wholesome in the pursuit of cool research. And, I mean, the work, I enjoy the work, so I enjoy what we're, you know, studying. Uh, and, <laughs> uh, yeah. Upon first glance, they make up an unlikely team. They're all so different. But it's those differences that make the plan feasible. Upon second glance... They're sort of the perfect triad. Everyone had their reasons for agreeing to the project. Both Serena and Rich are amateur brewers and had their sights set on brewing beer with ancient Egyptian yeast. But like Seamus, they were also Egypt enthusiasts. And they were hoping this project would help them learn more about Egyptians. The things that we don't know about the Egyptian brewing and baking process is what role did yeast play? We know they used yeast in baking and brewing, but yeast is invisible. Did they know they were cultivating yeast? Or was it a happy accident? There's a lot of questions as to whether the Egyptians knew what was causing the fermentation or the rising of the bread. If they thought it was, you know, just letting it collect out of the air, or if they were actively culturing their own yeast to do so. And uh, we'd be able to tell that by comparing the samples. So if they could sample yeast from different places, from different time periods in the Egyptian empire, and then look at the yeast DNA, they could map the changes through time and place. So seeing how these allelic changes happen between the Old Kingdom and, and New Kingdom would say a lot to how much the Egyptians were aware of the utility of yeast. We also know that in the lexicon, there's over 100 words for bread. What are the differences for all these breads? This goal, the possibility of discovering even more about Egyptian knowledge and technology than is currently known, it was really attractive to them. Attractive enough to take this project on. 
outside of their already more than full-time jobs. And research possibilities aside, there's a point to all of this for Seamus, Serena, and Rich. And it's a bit more personal than studying genetic drift or analyzing yeast DNA. It's an idea. What if we could taste what they tasted? My goal is to find, identify, validate these microorganisms and then use them to make bread that is as close to the bread that the Old Kingdom Egyptians ate as possible so that we can connect with them. That's my goal. What initially grabbed my attention in those headlines for the story was the idea of 4,500-year-old yeast. You read that, and you immediately have a million questions. Right. It's the kind of headline that stops you in your tracks. And I think that the main question is, yeast can really live that long? So the big surprise, I guess, is that you can, it looks like some of the strains have survived this long. And, I mean, we've certainly known they can survive for, you know, decades or hundreds of years. Thousands of years is really quite a thing. This is Dr. Joe Gray. He's a professor at the University of Glasgow, and he's an expert on yeast. I called him to talk about how yeast lives and survives over time. So they're really quite highly evolved, clever things. But we shouldn't be too surprised with that because, you know, a microorganism has a pretty brutal lifestyle in the wild. It's just out there in the big brutal world. Yeast are single-cell microbes from the fungal kingdom. They're far more prevalent in the world than you might guess. They're not just something that lives in the pantry of a baker's kitchen. Even under a microscope, they don't look like much. But for such small creatures, they're truly amazing. Yeast cells are everywhere, microscopic, completely invisible to the naked eye, floating around us all the time. The life of a yeast cell has two primary functions, eat and proliferate, which means reproduce. It often goes something like this. So the cell grows in size, it gets roughly about twice the normal size, and then divides in two to give two daughter cells. They are genetically all identical to each other. After a yeast cell is born, so to speak, it's an identical clone of its mother cell. Immediately, it needs to feed. A yeast cell feeds on sugars and starches, and when it finds a food source and it's eating and happy, it multiplies. For some, while they're eating and proliferating, they create CO2 and ethanol. So when they find a source of food, they use it up really, really quickly and make this horrible thing that stops anything else coming along to compete. And then they can finish off their dinner, if you will. Consequently, ethanol is something our human ancestors really came to enjoy. They harnessed the power of yeast to make delicious and potent wines and beers, or beautifully flavored bread. But for the yeast who haven't been so lucky to find food, well, they have this magic trick. They have an ability, like little sleeping beauties, to hibernate for long stretches of time. This is called quiescence. Dr. Joe Gray has studied the quiescence of yeast for decades. They're actually just out there in quiescence waiting for things to get good. That's what most cells are spending most of their time doing. And that is almost the condition that they've evolved to survive. And then occasionally they get a little bit of food, they can proliferate, make an awful lot more of themselves, and then their baby cells will then all go to sleep again. 
When a yeast cell is running low on sugar, it prepares itself for quiescence. It stops proliferating, hardens its cell wall, and the contents of the cells start to reorganize. Then it goes to sleep. Until recently, we actually didn't know how long yeast could be dormant without food. Scientists figured a couple decades, perhaps longer, until the spring of 2019. But what we think happened is that this yeast formed a colony. And the colony was living for 4,000 years inside the pot. On April 30th, 2019, a team of Israeli scientists published a paper where they claimed to have successfully extracted live ancient yeast cells from ancient brewing ceramics. And they estimated some of those yeast strains to be around 5,000 years old. Being able to study the traits, the characteristics of something ancient because it is surviving. How on earth can something survive for so long? These ancient ceramic jars have very porous walls, creating a matrix of passageways perfect for trapping little yeast cells. The scientists looked at fragments of these ancient vessels under a scanning electron microscope. And to their pleasant surprise, they saw small quiescent yeast cells inside the walls of the pots, alive and well, waiting to be extracted. This is a fantastic find. This is really a unique find. It's so exciting. Nothing has been done like this before. And I think it opens up an entire new field. So this is what's going on in the scientific community when Seamus is baking with mysterious yeast on Twitter. It's like this impenetrable barrier to the past was torn down after the Israeli team's study, leaving the door open for innumerable discoveries. Because now, Seamus, Dr. Love, and Rich know that their plan to extract hibernating ancient yeasts from Egyptian pottery is possible. After the break... Seamus, Serena, and Rich set out to secure ancient Egyptian yeast. Before the break, Seamus assembled his dream team and hatched a plan to bake with ancient Egyptian yeast. They started with phase one, secure access to the artifacts. According to Dr. Love, not all artifacts are created equal. There are four main things to consider when identifying the perfect targets for yeast extraction. The first, use. I was actually looking for jugs and molds that would have been used as opposed to more symbolic ones, because then we know that it will actually have had yeast in it. And then it'll By be symbolic artifacts, she means the kind that might be found in tombs. In Egypt, members of the elite society were buried in tombs along with a bunch of stuff. Pottery, food, art. Things that they believed that they could bring with them into the next life. But tombs were notorious for exaggeration. The dead knew their best angles, if you know what I mean. So ceramic beer pots and bread jars placed just so inside of a tomb may have been symbolic. They may not have ever been used. Which could reduce the possibility of finding yeast still alive inside. The second criteria, location. The ideal artifacts would be items that were found in settlements where people lived their day-to-day lives. So locations like bakeries or breweries. Over time, many Egyptian settlements were covered and buried by shifting sands. 
The climate in most of Egypt is arid and dry, and those conditions, the lack of moisture and bacteria, it turns out that that's really important for preserving objects. Leaving the possibility for bread jars that were actually used by everyday Egyptians to be quietly buried and safely preserved under the sand for thousands of years until they're excavated by modern archaeologists. The third criteria was variety. There's notable differences between the dynasties. So the language changes and and the art changes and the style of architecture changes. So Egyptian culture tends to get compressed into like one single entity, but it's really not. Ancient Egypt isn't a monolith, so getting samples from a variety of periods and dynasties gives us a more holistic picture of their baking practices. The final criteria, and perhaps the highest hurdle, was access. The export permissions in Egypt are very strict, so it's very difficult to get samples out of Egypt. So I knew I had to work with existing exported materials, so I had to work with museum collections. So Serena creates a spreadsheet and slowly populates it with artifacts that satisfy some or all of her criteria. Items that were used, found in settlements, bakeries, and breweries, excavated in a variety of locations, dated to a variety of time periods, that are currently housed in accessible museums. And so I just started using my network as best I could to get in touch with people that I knew had collections of Egyptian ceramics. Serena is a respected academic with a credible reputation. And on the strength of that reputation, she started sending emails. So I sent an email to about five or six colleagues and people who knew me personally and asking if you know anyone in these museums who can make an introduction. And then she waited, hoping she could get her proverbial foot in the museum vault door. Several museums completely ignore me, didn't respond to my messages at all. But then Denise Doxey, a curator from the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, or MFA, she replied. The MFA was willing to consider it because Dr. Love was decorated with credentials. Apparently, they're very spoiled with a large collection of artifacts and many objects not quite beautiful enough for the display cases on the gallery floor. The MFA says they protect those less-than-perfect objects specifically for scientific study. But they're not going to let just anyone handle them. The MFA wanted to know exactly how Seamus planned on testing the items. And that's right in Rich Bowman's wheelhouse. Phase two. Design the test to extract the yeast. He contacted me and asked me if I could come up with a method of extracting yeast from artifacts that wouldn't damage the artifacts. Earlier in the spring, that team of Israeli scientists who had successfully extracted brewing yeast had actually broken apart the pots and soaked those fragments in a fluid in order to get the yeast out. Seamus didn't want to do it that way. Yeah, so I'm really against any kind of destructive testing at all. And in fact, it was clear to me that scraping material off the outer surface of a bread mold or a beer pot would just get you, you know, 100 years of museum dirt and modern yeast. So the idea was, how do we get inside the matrix without damaging the vessels? And Rich came up with a plan. So my original idea was to take a modified disc filter and a um, 60 mil syringe 
with a uh, lock top, so you just like... Rich figured that in order to have the best uh, chance of extracting yeast, Seamus should target specific areas in the bottoms and sides of the pots. Seamus would fill a syringe with YPD. So it's just yeast extract, peptone, and dextrose. Basically a fluid, yummy yeast food. And by the way, peptones are proteins. Seamus came up with the idea of using cotton balls. He'd very slowly inject this yeast food into a cotton ball placed on the pot in an area where he wanted to sample. And slowly inject the pad with food from the syringe, effectively. And then the ceramic would slowly absorb the liquid food from the cotton pad. So as the pad dried out, you would just keep injecting it more until that specific area was saturated. And then wait 10 or 15 minutes and then just use the same syringe and suck it back up. Back into the syringe through the cotton pad. Ideally, the yeast would get trapped in the cotton pad, which you would basically squish in a Petri dish. And then we would take the liquid that was in the syringe and put that into a tube that we could eat. And just in case some yeast slipped through the cotton and back into the syringe, inject what's left in the syringe into a test tube. And if everything worked just perfectly... Dormant yeast cells would have suddenly found themselves swimming in sugar after almost 5,000 years of starvation. They'd wake up from their slumber to be sucked out of their ceramic prisons without a nick or scratch left on the precious artifacts. And one day I see, you know, an email in my inbox from Rich, and they've completely figured out an entire protocol. And then we tried it. Rich tried it. I tried it on some flower pots that I had, you know, prepared, that I had sterilized, and some that I had rubbed starter into and let dry. And we got a result back that indicated that maybe this would work. Seamus relayed the specifics of the testing process to Dr. Love. Each detail had to be perfectly outlined. The MFA wanted to know each and everything that would happen to the artifacts. They went back and forth and back and forth again, until eventually Dr. Love got an email saying, yes, yes, you can come and test our artifacts. Phase three, secure the yeast. The MFA, as it's called, was actually the first place that I can cognizantly remember as a sort of fully formed human seeing Egyptian antiquities. And in fact, when I was an undergraduate, I took a course in hieroglyphics, which is what got me started loving ancient Egypt and paying attention to and reading hieroglyphs. And the final exam for that class was at the MFA. In this kismet sort of full circle way, Seamus booked his flight to Boston so he could walk into the museum that helped him fall in love with Egypt in the first place. But this time, he'd walk into the vault and touch the artifacts with his own two hands. He brought his wife along with him so he could show her around the city that was so formative in his youth. He describes it to me in this totally shameless way. So I was trying to find ways to uh, at least get something out of it. And that way, you know, the sting of being discovered as a fraud by the Egyptologist I'm about to meet will be lessened. And so I felt a lot of pressure to not let Serena down. That was really my main goal was to not in any way embarrass or or damage Serena's reputation. And that brings us back to where we started this story. It was the moment he'd been waiting for. And 
the Egyptologist hands me this beer vessel and just nonchalantly. And for the first time in my life, I'm, I'm touching this thing. And it's not like I'm touching some piece of tomb jewelry or something, you know, that you'd usually see out on display in a museum. I'm getting handed something held by regular people. And it was, it was emotional for me. He tested a beer jar dated to the Old Kingdom between around 2649 and 2100 BC. It was excavated at Giza. He also tested another beer jar and a couple bread jars that were recovered in a tomb. Another item, item number 37.549, was an actual dried loaf of bread. It was flat and triangular in shape. It's dated around 2000 BC in the Middle Kingdom. It was excavated in Thebes in 1924. Inside the loaf, you can still see the coarse flecks of whole grains that make up the bread. He tested the artifacts methodically, slowly and carefully injecting the fluid, pressing the cotton, filling the test tubes. I took about three hours. I did all of this. I packed everything up, shook hands with them, and I left, all as if I knew what I was doing, which I guess, in retrospect, it turns out that I did. So the samples get packed up, shipped off to Rich in Iowa for testing, except not all the samples. Uh, okay, yes, I did. I, I, I did. I, I played hooky with one sample. In any good heist film, there's a part where the hero surprises the audience and their teammates with one last secret step to the plan we all thought we knew. It's the plot twist. Here's the part where we rewind and show you what really happened. Before, back in the vault of the MFA, Seamus sampled the bread loaf, item number 37.549, as planned, in three places. He removed the cotton pads, stored them, and injected the remaining YPD liquid into test tubes, labeled them, and packed them away for Rich to test. But then, while the Egyptologists weren't looking, and nonchalantly so as not to arouse any suspicion, he decided to take an extra sample. He placed fresh cotton down, injected the fluid once again into the loaf, and 10 minutes later, he retrieved the liquid along with its yeast passengers. And with a sleight of hand, he slid the rogue sample into his pocket and nobody was any the wiser. Okay, that might not have been exactly how it happened, but that's how I like to imagine it. When I asked the MFA curator, Denise Doxy, what she thought of all this, she simply and sort of shortly replied, Seamus never mentioned he actually planned to cook with his sample. And anyway, Seamus didn't get where he is by being a rule follower. So he snuck this, let's call it misappropriated sample home, excited to see if he had, in fact, captured what he hoped. Live, ancient yeast. Seamus outfitted his kitchen with all the necessary sterilization equipment. He set up an autoclave, a UV light, and wore gloves. He mixed the yeast sample with water and sterilized flour. And each day, he fed the sample. It's a careful process. Culturing a yeast starter is like overseeing a microbial war. The goal is to feed and strengthen the desired strain and hope it can fight other microbes for territory. He watched the mixture turn black and smelly. That's a sign of an exciting microbial battle, and he kept feeding it. Eventually, 
good bacteria entered the mix, and he had a proper sourdough starter, yeasty and bubbly and ready for baking. But after about two weeks, it started to smell really good. It started to smell like a starter, and it was markedly different. It was not just, you know, like, oh, you know, this starter from Pasadena smells a little bit different from the starter I collected in England, you know, last summer. It was really different. The starter smelled different, and it behaved differently, too. It fermented from the bottom of the culture instead of the top, like most modern yeast strains. If I try to bake with this yeast and do fermentation at 65 degrees or something, which is kind of, you know, winterish temperatures here in, in California in my kitchen, it just doesn't work. Bacteria take over and it fails. If I fermented at 90 or 95 degrees or 98 degrees, it's like a rocket. It makes perfect bread. Why does that make sense? Well, hey, those are the ambient temperatures on the Giza Plateau in the Old Kingdom. All of this is anecdotal evidence, of course, but promising nonetheless. What happens next is the big thing. The thing that grabbed headlines, the thing that captivated the attention of a lot of people. In much the same way this story began, Seamus decided to return to social media to bake, once again, for a Twitter audience. On August 5th, 2019, Seamus baked with the perhaps ancient yeast culture that he had cultivated from the perhaps ancient sample he took in the basement of the MFA. And it made beautiful bread. And the bread tasted different, markedly different from other sourdoughs that I've made. As soon as the bread came out of the oven, he could tell it was different than anything he had baked before. It smelled sweeter and tasted different. And again, I could be crazy. You know, this could be, you know, bias on my part. But it sure seemed that this was a different flavor profile from anything I'd ever used before. And that was really exciting. So he tweeted about it. In a long thread, he laid out all the work that he and Dr. Love and Rich had done. In one tweet, he writes, The crumb is light and airy, especially for a 100% ancient grain loaf. The aroma and flavor are incredible. I'm emotional. This is incredibly exciting, and I'm so amazed it worked. An interesting science experiment played out on Twitter this week. Physicist and inventor Seamus Blackley chronicled his effort to make a loaf of sourdough bread using yeast that he says has been dormant for more than 4,000 years. On August 5th, I actually flew from Brisbane to Los Angeles to go and see my family. So I got off the plane. I'm in a complete daze. I've been traveling for over 20 hours. And I'm in the L.A. airport about 6 a.m. and jumped onto the Wi-Fi. And I got a message from a friend saying something like, well, Twitter has blown up. And I thought, oh, no, what's he done? (laughs) Because Serena and Rich, two-thirds of this triad, they weren't fully clued in on Seamus's plan to bake bread with an extra sample from the MFA. And they could have never foreseen the way that their lives were about to change. I was uh, I'd com- I'm surprised. <laughs> so um, one of the ways that I knew that, uh, <laughs> that things had gotten a bit out of hand is when my follower count went from 22 to 700 in three days. 
and I've been on Twitter since 2009, so I figured something had, something had happened and something was about to hit the fan that I was not in any way prepared for. A loaf of bread has been getting a lot of attention online after a picture was posted on Twitter. This bread sure looks tasty. You'd never guess the most important ingredient is from 4,500 years ago. Talk about a blast from the past. A scientist says he used ancient yeast. I'm not being dramatic. This is legit. 4,500 years old to be exact. Ancient. This is a good time to remember that Seamus got into the MFA on Dr. Love's reputation. So it was on Dr. Love's reputation that Seamus had stretched the rules to procure a baking sample. But if she had any bitter feelings about it, certainly didn't last long. And I was so excited that it was successful and that he was able to do it. And then about three days later, I actually drove to his house and got to meet him for the first time. And he he baked me bread. And he, as soon as I walked in the door, he hands me, you know, a piece of toast. And he's like, oh, my God, taste this. And he had me feed the culture and sterilize the forks and put gloves on and switched on the UV light so that it didn't get contaminated. And he's like, okay, it's your turn. You get to feed the culture. And it was absolutely fantastic. And he said, smell this and taste this. And just putting my nose into everything and eating, you know, pieces of bread. And he was so excited. It's contagious. And it was absolutely wonderful. (laughs) It was contagious. The famous tweet got a ton of attention, and not just from the specific cross-section of people who normally interacted with Seamus on Twitter, physicists and bakers and gamers. People from all walks of life, from all disciplines, from all across the world, were captivated by what Seamus, Serena, and Rich had done. For perspective, there is more engagement on this Twitter post than an average Mariah Carey or Chrissy Teigen tweet. I only know this because that's what my researchers told me. There's also a stick in all of this, and the stick is that once people are excited about something like this, you suddenly realize you have a responsibility to do it right. When I talk to Seamus about this, he's so adamant. He repeats it again and again. We haven't done it yet. And he's right. In all reality, all that's happened is Seamus has baked a very famous sourdough loaf with some yeast cells he collected in the basement of the MFA. The sample hasn't been genetically sequenced yet, so there's no empirical evidence that it's ancient. There's still the possibility that all this commotion is being made over a contaminant. In order to figure out what yeast they actually have, Rich is analyzing samples. There are some very stable sections of the genome, um, in specific the 16S subunit of the ribosome. Specifically, he's looking at something called the 16S subunit of the ribosome. This is a very stable place in the yeast genome that can precisely tell us how old something is. And this process does not happen overnight. Extracting the DNA alone has been an arduous process, and the pressure is only building because now there's an audience. And the results still aren't back yet. So we wait. But this group of people is not good at waiting idly by. I mean, my goal here is to just practice and practice and practice and practice and practice until I feel like I have some mastery of these techniques and this grain and these microbes. While they await genetic sequencing, Seamus and Serena are learning to bake as the ancient Egyptians did. They're immersing themselves in studying the pottery and the baking techniques. Seamus is teaching himself to bake in clay pots. 
Then he's going to build an oven in his backyard to replicate the in-ground ovens that Egyptians used to use to bake in the Old Kingdom. It's pretty neat to say, hey, look, you know, we made bread in the style of ancient Egypt, or the ancient Egyptians may have eaten this. It's a completely different thing to say, we have proven through the work of thousands of scientists culminating in this moment that the thing you're about to eat is as close as we're ever going to get to being the same food eaten by people 5,000 years ago while they were building the Great Pyramid. That's phenomenal. Bake like the Egyptians baked. That's the next phase in the plan. They hope to identify the sample soon, partly so they can distribute it to anybody who wants it. It hasn't been lost on Seamus, Serena, and Rich, mostly because of public feedback, that there's a tense history with the way ancient Egyptian artifacts have been removed from Egypt. And so if we can literally resurrect these organisms and return them to Egypt, then I feel that we've done something something tangible and real and meaningful to ameliorate this terrible situation that's happened historically with all of these objects and all of these important things being taken from Egypt. I think Seamus knows that he benefited from a structural inequity in access. But that's the beauty of yeast, right? It multiplies. There's enough to go around. And meanwhile, we all wait with bated breath to find out if we'll get to break bread with the ancient Egyptians. And if we can do that, if we found an ancient microbe, which we still don't know if we did, but if we found an ancient microbe and we continue to sample, so we'll find it if it's possible, then we've done our job. We've shown that we've resurrected this thing, and that's the point. There's no other point. We're not doing anything on the cutting edge here. This is like a, literally a Sunday morning baking project, you know, that's grown all out of proportion. It strikes me when Seamus says things like this, that he's hedging his bets so that just in case the results come back and they aren't what he wants, it'll sting a little bit less. For Seamus, for Serena, for Rich, for me, and for the thousands of others who are watching. I mean, look, I <laughs> this is a very expensive, difficult enterprise. All of the travel and expensive <laughs> gene sequencing stuff and materials and time and all of this, it's a lot of work. I mean, it's a crazy super hobby that I never intended to have. And I would never do this if it wasn't such a special thing. Maybe it's a way of justifying time spent, saying no matter how it turns out, this will be worth it because look at the interesting things we learned along the way about Egypt, about bread, about our past. Look what we're capable of when we work together. Thanks to our managing producer, Sarah Joyner, for reporting this story. Hey, folks, thanks for listening. Tune in next week for more Best of Proof. 